All right, so we do have uh, some rock star Bible stuff readers today in the persons of Ani and Dylan Pulikevich, and I think they have the microphone over there. So, Ani, we're actually going to start with you in Mark chapter 7. So, Ani, loud and clear, give it up. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. One day some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived in Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to show the Jewish ritual at hand of washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cup tents as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to since as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't you and your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing and washing the hand ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from mine. Their worship is fierce, and they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's laws and substitute for your own tradition. All right, and Dylan, the James passage. Can I come up there? Yes, you can. <laughs> By the way, what grade are you in, Dylan? Fifth. Fifth grade, that means, Ani, your twin sister is also in fifth grade. Very good putting that together. <laughs> I'm pretty smart. Come on up. Reading from the book of James, chapter 1, 17 through 27. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down from us to God, our Father, who created all the light in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Understand this, my dear brother and sisters. You must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the human anger and, um, I mean, get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. And if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Well done. Nailed it. Thank you very much. Oh, you can uh, give it to Jason right there or Dar on your way out. Very good. Thank you. That was awesome. So if you have a kid uh, that uh, would like to get in on this reading stuff, it's good for us to uh, get to know uh, your kids because they're part of this church and we want to know them and have a relationship with them and support them and all that. Uh, or if you'd like to read, if you want to take your shot at it, you're welcome to do that as well. Just let me know and we will get you on the list. And thank you to the Pulikevich girls today for being our uh, excellent greeters as well. So hopefully that made you a little, little better today. Very good. Well, my first word in reaction to uh, especially the James passage today is, damn. That may surprise you. 
So this word was the first word of the first line that I had to say as Horace Vandergelder in the musical Hello Dolly. Uh, Horace Vandergelder was the older curmudgeon that falls in love with uh, Dolly, and uh, that was the first word out of my mouth as a sophomore in high school. Now the reason why that is interesting, at least to me, is because I grew up in a pastor's household uh, I grew up as the grandson of two pastors, uh, and all of those households, swearing never happened. It was never tolerated. It didn't even need to be said that it wasn't tolerated, because everybody in our respective families just knew that was not going to happen, and it didn't. And so when I tried out for this part, and I'm looking at the first line, I had a serious problem of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> what am I being called to say here? And my dad, the pastor, and at that time executive minister of the state of Michigan within our tribe, uh, he kind of coached me along and helped me practice so that I could get my Horace Vandergelder on and my sophomore in high school off <laughs> so I could play the part well. But I so struggled just to say the word damn because it was so foreign to me. And it just rubbed me so wrong because in my household, you just never <laughs> said that word. So it literally took me weeks and weeks and weeks to be able to pull it off convincingly. <laughs> and I needed the literal blessing of my parents, ironically, <laughs> to swear publicly uh, for that very first time on such a stage. There was this just thing. This was who we are, and we don't do this. And my parents are not swearers at all. They also were not uh, angry people, which is probably why they didn't swear a whole lot. So there was not any, I never, ever saw my parents argue about anything ever, never heard a curse word or a cross word uh, go toward either of them from either of them my entire life. I mean, that's just sort of the environment that we grew up in, and my grandparents were exactly the same way. Well, uh, there was this internal thing that said I shouldn't do this, and that was uh, clear to me when I went on to college. In college, uh, that's where you're kind of on your own. It's sort of this wonderful in-between phase where you're not really on your own, but you're pretty close to on your own. And uh, I started to add to my vocabulary, uh, not, just <laughs> not just that word, but others. And I remember uh, coming out of um, the student union one day, uh, and I'll tell you why I was able to get to this space in a minute, but I, I came out of the student union, I saw a friend, you know, maybe 15 yards ahead of me, and I wasn't angry with him or whatever, but I was going to say something whatever, and I had quite a selection of colorful words that I strung together masterfully as I talked to my friend 15 yards away. And as I blurted these things out, I looked at Toy Jones Hall, which is uh, the arts performance building, and there's my choir director, Joyce Sturmer, just coming out right at the moment when all these beauties are flying out of my mouth. And I kind of held myself up as a pretty pretty good guy and all of a sudden this this is too late you know you can't you can't put the, the toothpaste back in the tube you know it's out there for the whole world and I look over at Joyce and she's like <laughs> like this and I felt mortified and I kind of just kind of walked away in shame and guilt I was so filled with shame and guilt after my string of obscenities 
uh, that later that day I made my way back to her office to apologize for my unchristian behavior. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm so choked up about it even now. <laughs> and I, I did because it, there was just this internal mechanism in me which said, you just don't do this. And it was hardwired into me from birth. Almost this legalistic kind of thing that if you're a good Christian, you don't say such words. And so I look at what we have here and I see myself reflected in both of these passages because we have a contrast. On the first, in the Mark passage that uh, Annie read, Annie read, uh, we, have, we have people who are the religious leaders who are so careful with what they do uh, that they get on people when they don't do the quote-unquote right thing. And for them, it had to do with hand-washing rituals and whatever. And the reputation that these Jewish leaders, not the Jewish people as a whole, but the Jewish leaders had was that they may do the thing right on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts are black as coal that they're missing the point, that they may be doing the things that apparently fulfill the covenant code with God, but their hearts don't reflect what they're doing on the outside. I don't know if you've ever seen this expressed in anybody. Because I grew up in the church, unfortunately, I have. Uh, I have come across a number of folks in my life uh, growing up, Nobody here at Crosswalk, of course, but at growing up anyway, I've come across folks who knew how to quote chapter and verse and lived their lives squeaky clean, but their ethos, their heart, by all appearances, I could never see any love there. In fact, some of the people that I met in church were some of the grumpiest, <laughs> most judgmental people I'd ever met in my life. And I think that's the kind of person we're seeing here that Jesus is calling out. Uh, this is just a little taste of what Jesus does to call out this type of person on this end of the faith spectrum. There's another spectrum we'll get to, the other side of it in a second. But in another uh, passage of Scripture, Jesus spends an entire chapter, Matthew 23, just raking them over the coals. And one of the things he says uh, is that they are like whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside. They look all holy and spiritual on the outside, but inwardly they are living death. I mean, horrible, horrible stuff. In another passage, he commends them for their scholarship. He says, you know, listen to what they say to tell you what to do in terms of understanding God and ethics and all that stuff, but don't do what they do because he recognized there was a disconnect between their heart and what was really going on under the surface and their actions. Something was missing, and that missing something was massive, so much so that it kind of spoiled everything else. And then we got the other end of the spectrum in the book of James. In the book of James, you have these people who apparently are walking pretty tight with God. They're pretty confident in the grace and the love of God, and yet their behavior doesn't seem to reflect that love of God for them or for other people. It's almost like they're at this place where they found their inner peace. They know they're quote-unquote saved. They know that they're going to be okay with God. They know that their address, their forwarding address for afterlife is settled and can't be messed with. And so it's like they've come to a place where like, 
Well, I nailed it. I got it. So I'm just going to go ahead and do whatever feels right with my life. And they did. So what does James have to tell them? You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So why would James write that? This is the brother of Jesus talking, by the way. Why would James need to write that? Write that. Well, because they were probably offering their commentary uh, sooner than they should have, probably weren't listening for understanding, and probably were getting angry instead of compassionate. They forgot that we are built with two ears and one mouth, and should probably do the math on what that means. <laughs> Listen more than we speak. Take your time. Be patient. Watch what happens with your mouth and your life. So when I was in college, I can relate to this just a little bit. Because uh, again, college is that formative time where, you know, we're sort of on we're, we're your own. There's sort of a safety net there. And I know at that time, I was fully aware of the grace of God. And theologically, I was putting things together and believing things that I still believe. Like, we can't do anything to change God's love for us. That's the non-negotiable. It's not ours to change. It's just there. The grace of God is so pervasive, so massive, that you can't do anything to screw that up. Uh, it's always going to be there. So that's very good news. If you've come in today and you feel like you've wrecked your life and God wants nothing to do with you, I'm telling you, that's nonsense. That's hogwash. Let that go because that's just not true. Uh, Jesus proved this with his life and his teaching and who he hung around with and who he touched and who he communicated forgiveness to is this thing is non-negotiable. Now, you can refuse the love of God in your life. That's a different kind of thing. Uh, you can choose not to benefit from the love and grace of God in your life. You can, you can keep God at arm's length. That's up to you. But the fact of God's love for you forever, that can't be altered. And so probably because I was hardwired to be very egocentric and very self-serving because I was very young, uh, going through college and had lots of things to explore in my life, I figured out that since I could get away with anything in terms of God's love for me, I might as well experiment a little bit. And so I did and made some pretty reckless choices in my life that I wish, you know, I, I wish I could have taken back now because they caused pain in me <laughs> and a few other people as well that could have been avoided. But I think that was part of my mentality. I've got this thing settled here between me and God. And so kind of whatever you do with your life out there is not as important. I think that's a little bit where James was and what he was talking to with his people. And it begs a question, for me at least, about why am I even doing this faith thing and what is this faith thing about? If the ends of the spectrum are this hyper-legalism where you do the things on the outside kind of to keep God and keep yourself in God's graces, to appease God, to avoid God's wrath, if that's their picture of God. Is that really what we're talking about? Is that the point? Or is the other extreme the point where, you know, once you kind of, you know, in the traditional language, once you accept God into your life and you've been forgiven and all that, is that kind of it? Just getting to heaven, is that really all that it's about? Uh, is, is that where it ends? And so my question is for you, why are you here? What is faith about for you? 
why do you keep doing it? You've chosen to come spend an hour-ish with each other here at Crosswalk uh, to hear some great music, to hear me ramble on for a while. Why do you keep doing it? What is your motivation? What is the why behind the what that you do? Now, Jesus, uh, he tried to correct this and give some vision of this uh, throughout his teaching ministry. And one of the things that he told uh, to the disciples uh, one day, he was talking about different voices that we might follow after. And one of the things that he said to them is, you know, I'm the, I'm the shepherd, the sheep hear my voice, and they follow after me. Uh, there are other voices that you may hear, and they're not really helpful shepherds. Some are even dressed, uh, they're actually you know, wolves, and they're there to rob and to steal and to kill. But then he goes on and he says to them in John chapter 10, I think it's verse 10, He says, I came to give you life, came to teach you and show you a way to life and life abundant. Not an abundance of stuff. That's the Western gospel. He who dies with the most toys wins. And that's not the gospel that Jesus came to present. He said, I came to give you life abundant, a a full life that actually it turns out is not at all dependent on your external circumstances. The Apostle Paul, who, who gave us that 1 Corinthians 13 earlier, in another letter to another church, he said, I have learned the secret to being fully content. And it had to do with his faith. And he said, it doesn't matter if I'm rich or I'm poor. It doesn't matter if I'm free or if I'm imprisoned. I can even be beaten and I'm still content. There is this quality of life that faith affords, that provides for us, that is rich, filled with love, meaning, purpose. It's a life that I've said recently, it's a life worth living for. It's a life worth suffering for. It's a life worth dying for. Paul found it. I've seen this life expressed uh, in the faces of people I met in the slums of Nairobi, Kenya, called Haruma. Uh, The people who are associated with Faraha Community Center that we support. I've seen people... Uh, rejoicing in worship, uh, genuinely, who are living on $2 a day, uh, living in a shared space, a 10 by 10 room with six to eight other people where they're doing life, where they really have, especially the adults by that time, really have no hope of ever escaping the slum life. And yet, their joy and their contentment seems to be real, deep, complete. So I know that this is possible, that even in the worst of circumstances, this abiding love faith foundation can carry us through. There's a guy, his name is Thomas Kelly. And in the last few decades, uh, he has been instrumental in reintroducing spiritual contemplative practices to the Western world. And in his book, A Testament of Devotion, He talks about what life is like when we're deeply rooted in God. And he says this, life from the center, the center of this God experience. Life from the center is a life of unhurried peace and power. It is simple. It is serene. It is amazing. It is triumphant. It is radiant. It takes no time, but occupies all our time. And it makes our life programs new and overcoming. 
We need not get frantic. God is at the helm. And when our little day is done, we, d we lie down quietly in peace, for all is well. Even if all on the outside is not well. Because there is a wellness that is deeper than the chaos of our world. So what does it look like? How do we understand that? Do the text give us any clue about what that might look like? We actually get a clue from James. We get some what not to do's from both Jesus and James. Uh, what not to do's about the Pharisees and what they were doing. All the stuff on the external that looked holy and complete, but inwardly, uh, hearts dark as coal. And then from James, we get the idea that, okay, well, they got the grace of God thing down really well, but James is huge on, we'll look at this next week, and this is all lectionary stuff, which you can read ahead on. And James is huge on, you better be doing something with this faith, because if you're not doing anything in response to this faith, you're missing the faith. And so he throws us a curveball. It's really odd if you follow his trajectory. So he's riding along that seems very deeply personal and interpersonal. So he's talking about, hey, listen more, talk less, don't jump to anger so fast. Uh, all this advice, watch your mouth, you know, this is like the house I grew up in, right? And then he takes a hard turn and he says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Right before that, he's talking about controlling your tongue and your religion is worthless if you're not. And then he does this quick shift to caring for widows and orphans and not getting conformed into the way of the world. Why? Why widows and orphans? Well, there's a real good reason why widows and orphans. Because in antiquity, and in especially poorer countries today, widows and orphans represent a group of people who are the most vulnerable. These are people who have been victimized uh, by death or desertion. So widows, and especially in antiquity, they're alone. And if they didn't have children to take care of them, they were incredibly vulnerable. Orphans, uh, they don't have anybody looking after them. They've at least lost one parent. Why do, why do we support Faraha Community Center? Because over 90%, I think it's like 95% of those students who are there are orphaned students in one of the worst places in the world. We look for those who are most at risk because they're the ones who are the most vulnerable. James is saying, if you really want to get this thing done, it's not just about what comes out of your mouth. It's what are you doing with your life? Do you care about the most vulnerable around you? because that's what God is looking for. And apparently, not caring for the most vulnerable around you is more indicative of the way of the world, which makes sense. Because our normal hardwiring in our culture is look out for ourselves. Make sure we're okay. And if you have a moment for the day to chip in five bucks to the Salvation Army can at Christmas, then you've done your job. But what James is saying is, no, that is, that is not the way of God. Because the way of God is saying to you and to me that God's love is pervasive and it's for everyone. Not just for you. That's awesome. Get your inner peace all filled up. Fantastic. But God's love is also for that person over there and that person way over there. Some of whom you may not like. 
some of whom you may question whether or not they're telling the truth or whatever. And so my question is, is how do we, how do we know if we're nailing this widows and orphans piece? And if we're not, what is that saying about the faith that we say that we have? If we're really not doing anything uh, to look after the world's most vulnerable, those who are experiencing injustice of whatever kind, if we're not doing anything to speak for them, what does that say about us? And by the way, I don't think James is crossing over at all into this. In fact, this is why the book almost didn't make the cut into the canon. Uh, I don't think James is saying this is about earning your way into God's favor. That's not it at all. Um, he's saying, you know, if you believe this stuff, just do it. Do the things that you know you're supposed to do. But everything that James is saying is do this because this is what should be coming out of your faith-filled life. I can relate to this a little bit, too. There was a time many years ago uh, when my son Noah uh, was in uh, grade school, and uh, we, were, uh, we were someplace where a kid about his age, who I knew very, very well, um, for some reason, and I have no idea why, uh, if it was just to exert his power or mess up the apple cart or whatever, but completely unprovoked, this kid comes over and punches my son in the stomach. Now, you got to understand, uh, my son Noah, you know, we named him Noah because he was born in a massive storm uh, in the Midwest. Literally, a tornado helped bring about his birth. <laughs> he was born premature because of air pressure drops, and that happens in the Midwest. Anytime a tornado or that kind of low, immediate low pressure happens, uh, the OB unit gets fuller uh, because waters start breaking uh, and <laughs> babies start coming. And that was our experience. So this thing was on the way, and I remember driving to the children's hospital because it was premature in this massive storm. And when it came time to name our son, we'd kind of talked about uh, Noah, but it just made sense. We just went through this massive storm. Noah just seems right. Well, Noah, the name means brings comfort. And Noah just sort of has lived into that. Uh, he's just kind of a peacemaker guy. Uh, he just got his master's in dispute resolution so he, resolution, so he can continue uh, doing that stuff. So I'm telling you that because I'm absolutely confident that Noah at that moment or five minutes before wasn't a jerk to this other kid, <laughs> which caused him to come back and retaliate in some way. So here my son, who's young, uh, just got punched uh, by somebody who shouldn't have and my son is just sitting there I don't even know what to do he's like trying to catch his breath he didn't know what to do but I knew what to do and so I stepped in and I had a brief conversation with this young lad and let him know that that was entirely inappropriate that he owed my son an apology and if he ever chose to do such a thing again he would be dealing directly with me and the tone of my voice and the look in my eyes made it very clear that I was very, very serious. <laughs> and the kid got the message. Now, I'm all for being a parent that uh, it's important to let your kid fight their own battles and figure out who they are and learn their own strength and all that. That's a good thing to do. This was not one of those moments. My son was victimized, and he needed somebody to come in and help correct the situation, and I did. You know why I did that? It's because that morning in my devotional time, I worked out a situational ethic that if something like this should ever arise, I already had it pre-calculated how I would step in and say just the right words when I saw victimization happen. 
That's not it at all. <laughs> I did not do that. Why did I do what I did? Because I love my son. And I saw that my son, who I love, was just victimized before my eyes, and I was not going to have it. Uh, I've seen my wife do this uh, with my kids, the same kind of thing, in a similar kind of a circumstances. <laughs> we went to this horrible place. It's, um, it's kind of a horror show of a place. Uh, it's kind of a torture chamber place. Have you ever heard of Chuck E. Cheese before? <clears throat> Anyway, the kids were there at a birthday, and some, some other gro- older kids kind of ran over my daughter, I think. And boy, you saw Mama Bear come out right then and there. It was, it was a sight to behold, and it was appropriate. Why did she do that? Because she loves her kids, and she saw her kid get victimized. She was like, that is not going to happen anymore under my watch. That's what parents do to protect your kids, and it's all out of love for your kids. Well, what if we had that same kind of passion in our world where we see that people are victimized around us? Maybe we don't believe in the victimization because we don't know them that well, and we wonder, well, are they even telling the truth? Or maybe there's another side of the story here, and maybe, maybe we should just hold off. And I'm wondering, is that enough for us to not care if we don't understand their story, if we don't understand the complexity of what they're up against? Is that enough for us to stop and say to James, well, James, okay, if I ever come across a widow or an orphan like you're describing who's completely vulnerable and has no hope, count me in. But you don't understand our world, James. You don't understand what we're seeing because we're hearing people crying foul and that they're victimized and all this. And I just don't know. I don't know if I can believe all that. Because maybe there, I heard somebody say this, and maybe that disqualifies them from my compassion. I think we've got to be really aware of this in our own lives. That we are easily disposed to this kind of thinking and logic. And why are we so easily disposed to it? Well, part of it is we don't want to get ripped off. We don't want to be get snookered. We don't want to waste resources, waste our emotional energy on something that may be, uh, you know, not exactly correct. But I think also we need to we need to ask ourselves, is, is perhaps one of the reasons why we're not as compassionate in the world toward those who are victimized, who are experiencing injustice on different levels, is, is part of the reason why that because doing so would make us uncomfortable. Doing so will mess with our lives. And we just don't really want to. And if that's the case, which it might be, then I think we need to back up the truck and do some reflection on why are we doing this faith? What is this faith really about? And if the love of God is so complete in me and everyone else, why don't I act like a mama bear when I see God's other children suffering? It's a tough, penetrating question that I think the audience for James wondered about. Uh, one of the things that uh, I've incorporated into my pretty much daily world is I read this poet. <laughs> uh, you've probably heard of him. His name's Rumi. Anybody read a little Rumi now and then? Uh, and he wrote this this week, and I just thought about James on all this uh, because what I just said might offend you and might trouble you and 
there's probably some of you that wish I wouldn't have said anything. Let's just talk about the love of God, Pete, and how, how wonderful we are, <laughs> and go on with our days and feel good. But that's not what James is saying. And so there's some disturbing things that I'm saying and suggesting for myself, by the way, as much as anybody else. But this is what Rumi wrote. He said, what sort of person says he wants to be polished and pure, then complains about being handled roughly? Love is a lawsuit where harsh evidence must be brought in. Hear it again. What sort of person says he wants to be polished and pure, then complains about being handled roughly? Our guitar player, who isn't here today, usually sits there, Ed Barker, he is a master of many things. And one of the things he is is a jeweler. And I've had many conversations with Ed about the process of making jewelry and what to do to get people to look right and out the Sometimes, because she loves me, uh, she tells me. She brings the evidence to it. I don't want to hear it. But that's usually how I react. Some of you married women understand this for some reason. <laughs> I don't understand why. <laughs> and some of you, anybody who's been in a relationship ever before, you understand what I'm talking about. When someone brings us, puts us on the stand and says, you're saying you love me, but here's this piece of evidence. Doesn't suggest a lot of loving happening there. We do not want to hear it. Because it challenges who we are. It challenges at our core. It challenges me at my core. Part of the reason why I react so strongly because I know that I love my wife. I don't want to be told that my behavior might suggest otherwise. I want to be the same way with God. So really living out this balance, this dance of knowing that we're loved by God. God loves us deeply, but God also loves everybody else just as deeply. And the creation itself just as deeply. It's God's reflected in the eyes of every single person on the planet. And therefore, if we are so with the love of God, we should too. 
to mess with you. Point number one is how does that ride with you? And if you're cool with that, my question for you is who, who are the widows and the orphans that you're caring about right now? Widows and orphans, and there are lots of different groups you come from. Widows and orphans have your heart right now. Have your time, your compassion, your empathy, your listening ear, and your actions. And maybe cash. <laughs> because that's when we know that it's legit. It actually matters to you enough to actually do something about it. We are engaged in this stuff. And some of you want to be engaged. Uh, because sometimes the only way that that part changes us, the only way we get there, is, uh, is if we actually experience it in some way. Another person I read uh, every day, I probably have that sometimes is Richard Rohr. Actually, it wasn't Richard Rohr, but he quoted by somebody else. Richard Rohr that we cannot think ourselves into a new way of living. Because we cannot think ourselves into a new way of living. Rather, we must lift ourselves into a new thing. And what he's getting at is we change, our hearts change. When the widows and the orphans are vulnerable, we've been victimized, actually in a relationship with them, and we hear their story, and we find out the complexity, and we become one. Why does my heart break a little bit more for the orphans? And the slum of Roma of Sunday Rome. Because I've been there. And I've looked at their heads and I've seen them and I've seen these kids and I've heard their stories. Does my heart break for the LGBT community in our area and our nation and our world? Well, because they're my friends. And I've heard what they've gone through. And it breaks my heart because they are just as much a child of God and loved as much as I am. Groups of people, but we have a lot of groups of people that say to us, we feel victimized in this world. And we need help. There's no easy way for you to just get related. It may be hard if it's something you're really concerned about. And it probably would be a good idea if we all and just decide to go out by the mediator. It may not be the best. Of action. But there are other ways for you to start to broaden your understanding of the complexity of life that you're in. And the systems that come around to create that experience. I don't care if it's people who are struggling with addiction, if it's people struggling with mental illness, with extreme poverty, uh, with uh, workforce housing issues and affordability, um, uh, immigration issues, language issues, racism, sexism. All sorts of other isms. The good news is, is you are not alone and you are not without resources to start to build a relationship of understanding with them even before you meet them. You know, one thing that does happen here that we've noticed in the past few years is it's very rare that somebody just sort of happens by our church and starts coming by accident. Most of the people who end up coming to Crosswalk and trying us out, by the time they, by the time they, come physically for the very first time, they have already listened to me a handful of times. They've already gotten to know me through our internet stuff. Uh, 
long before they showed up, which is a new reality in the last 20 years. You know, there are tools that you can employ. There are articles, there are books, there are YouTube videos, there are documentaries, there are TED Talks. There is a world of resources for you and I to get to know the widows and orphans around us if we care, if we take James seriously, if we don't settle for where we are in our depth of maturity in our faith and choose to go deeper to say, if the love of God is this pervasive for me, then it must be for others and I'm called to do something about it as an expression of my faith, then taking the time to understand more matters. And it matters for your faith experience. Don't settle. Don't settle for diamond in the rough just because it's hard to get tumbled around and to see the parts of you that need to be reshaped and stuff that needs to come off and stuff that needs to get buffed out. You're made for more than that. God made you for more than that. God made us to shine. And for us to shine brilliantly, to shine light on dark spaces that need to be illumined so that the grace and the love of God and the value that that implies to everyone everywhere can be expounded and expanded. This is what we're, this is what we get to do. So some of you, uh, Maybe you hear this stuff today and feel like, I'm at a really comfortable place in my faith. I'm feeling really great about it. And what I'm saying to you is, what I'm asking you is, do you really think you've arrived? Do you really think you've, you've gone to the depths of the grace of God? Do you really think that's what it's all about? And I'm inviting you, along with myself, let's not settle. Let's not assume we've figured this whole thing out, that we've arrived in some way, when really we're just getting started. Because this is the invitation we're able to move into a life of faith where we experience content, abundance of life, no matter the circumstance, and a life of faith that makes a massive difference in the world because we choose to express the love of God everywhere for everyone because that's what they deserve and that's who God is. So let's pray together and then uh, we'll let you go. So if you just close your eyes for a moment and take another deep breath. I'm wondering if the Spirit of God is active with us today. I'm wondering what nudge or invitation there might be uh, stirring in you right now. Is there an insight that you need to really think about? Is there a, an action that you're encouraged to take? If you can identify it, then I encourage you to the best of your ability to respond to that. Your response might be an overwhelming, yes, I'm in. I want to go deeper. It might be, no way, but I'll think about it. It might be, maybe, but I'm afraid, or somewhere in between. God, we are all in process. And my hunch is, God, that throughout the course of our lives, our faithfulness and our understanding of you and our capacity to allow you to flow through us is going to ebb and flow. <laughs> my hunch is that today, 
maybe Dylan and Ani are the most spiritual giants among us and their age of being fifth graders more than anyone else. And maybe some of us who are mature and <laughs> have so much understanding, maybe we have the furthest to go right now. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's life. But I pray that we'll see where we are in the process and that we will accept your invitation to walk deeper with you because we get to. And to that end, we pray the prayer together uh, that was given to us by Jesus, uh, a framework of prayer, a paradigm for living hand in hand with you, God. And we choose to pray it now as an act of solidarity. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for coming today. I hope you had a good experience, and we hope to see you next week. Have a great week.